Welcome to New Atlas Live. I'm Brian Berletic. Joining me today is Mark Sloboda, an international relations and security expert based in Moscow, Russia. And today we're going to be talking about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. So uh, thank you so much for joining us live. This is your, your first live stream with us here at the New Atlas. Angelo couldn't make it, uh, but maybe next time. How are you doing, Mark? Brian, uh, thanks for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be back on uh, the new Atlas and, and especially in the live format. Hey, uh, everyone out there in uh, live land, uh, uh, thanks for listening to me uh, uh, stand on top of a soapbox for the next hour or so. Uh, we're, we're, we're happy. We're happy for you to do so. And yes, thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, this Friday evening for me here in Asia uh, Friday afternoon for you, Mark. Uh, thank you, everyone. Check, please check the video description below for all of Mark's uh, various platforms that you can find and follow his work. And without further ado, let's just get into what's going on. I want to kind of, um, I want to start with what the Western, what, what Western so-called analysts are saying. So this is the Institute for the Study of War. I, I think anyone who has been following your work or mine regarding analysis for Ukraine know that this is a very biased pro-Western source. And I just want to go over the main point, the three main points that they have put on their most recent update and then get your feedback on this. They say Russia is canceling parades for Victory Day on uh, May 9th because they have no equipment to put on display. They're running so low on equipment, they, they cannot put together any parades. This is what they're saying. Uh, the next one, this is a literal quote. Uh, U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, stated that Russian forces are likely unable to conduct a significant offensive in 2023 due to munitions and manpower shortages, regardless of the success of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And finally, the Kremlin is attempting to increase the production quotas of military supplies despite reportedly, very important word there, reportedly lacking the necessary Manpower, and then if you dig into the report, who reportedly said that? Uh, some opposition media, when, then when you look at that source, they have no evidence uh, at all whatsoever to substantiate that claim. So, Mark, uh, maybe let's start with the parades, the Victory Day parades, and then let's just go uh, off from yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, I I read what the Institute of Study of War says, like like I read the Washington Post and the New York Times. You know, I, I think it's better called the Newland Kagan war propaganda outfit. I mean, because uh, let, let's face it, that is what it is. Um, uh, you know, to, to give it uh, far academic credentials is is uh, a stretch too far uh, in in my humble opinion. Um, yes, Russia has canceled um, uh, May 9th parades, particularly the uh, the. Immortal Regiment March, uh, which there, there's two different types of parades. First of all, May 9th is, uh, one of the, one of the two biggest, if not the biggest holiday on the Russian year. The, the other one would be New Year's, which is obviously more of a festive occasion. Uh, uh, it combines the gift giving of Western Christmas plus New Year's plus Fourth of July all together. All right. So big holiday. The other big holiday on the Russian year is, uh, you know, uh, a military patriotic day, and it commemorates uh, the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany and its European fascist allies um, in in World War II. Uh, 
uh, and it has long been kind of a a galvanizing uh, memorial institution for first the Soviet and now now the Russian state. Um, and it has to be said that it was as well widely celebrated in most of the rest of the former Soviet Union, minus the Baltics, uh, and still is in, in several others, although now we see, uh, of course, Ukraine uh, ha- has started to penalize uh, people who, who celebrate, uh, you know, uh, Victory Day with the, the St. George orange and black striped ribbon that is the, the traditional uh, a symbol of this day uh, for, you know, decades since, since World War II now. Um, and uh, it, in the Baltics and in Europe as well, if you simply show those orange and black stripes, you will be arrested because freedom of the speech or something, something like that. Freedom of speech, right? I mean, let's uh, be honest about that there, about what, what European states really are right now. Um, so um, there is a military parade where the Russian military, uh, you know, puts its troops, it's a chance for the troops, to, you know, uh, the, the young men who are serving their country to be seen by everyone and, and look shiny and specialized. Uh, and then, uh, you know, some military equipment rolls through. Um, and the military equipment is mainly uh, after the trauma, the, the national existential trauma of World War II, where the Soviet Union lost 30 million plus people, the people like to be reassured that the state has the military force to protect them again. That is why uh, this is is held in this way. But in the last decade or so, a second parade has emerged, and this is the Immortal Regiment March. Now, previously, World War II veterans used to march as well. Obviously, there are only a handful of World War II veterans still left with us. My wife and I used to go to Victory Park uh, on uh, Victory Day, uh, where a lot of the veterans would go and we would hand out uh, roses and, and carnations, which is uh, red colors, which is traditional uh, to the veterans there. But as the years go on, there are fewer and fewer veterans uh, able to do that, of course. So the Immortal Regiment March is the Russian people carry placards, pictures, right? High res, old pictures, old framed pictures, whatever they have. And in a way, it has become kind of a modern state-centric patriotic icon because there is this tradition of of orthodoxy where uh, the orthodox Christian faith where icons are a, a powerful element of this. They're pictures of their own family members or people close to them that had that sacrificed everything in World War II, um, uh, you know, have become the modern icons that they carry. And these marches attract millions of people, and it, it has spread everywhere, not just in Russia, but you you can now find Immortal Regiment marches, at least before the last year, all over the world. Right. I mean, there are mortal regiment marches in the U.S. and China and Canada. Right. Now, obviously, they won't happen, particularly in the West everywhere this year. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, in the most recent years, I would say that the immortal regiments march has people have started uh, to make it 
you know, not just World War II, but the subsequent conflicts. Not that the Soviet Union was involved. I mean, so many. It was Afghanistan and Chechnya, which was was internal. Uh, but now, of course, there it is. Uh, some people will start to carry uh, the pictures of those lost uh, in, you know, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, you know, uh, for the people in the Donbass, they've been fighting for nine years now against uh, the West Bank Putsch regime in Kiev. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, it, it, now that Russia has been uh, officially uh, involved with the intervention in the last year as well. Uh, but uh, Russia has been canceling a lot of uh, the, first of all, the Immortal Regiment marches are canceled across the West because of freedom of speech, right? Um, but the, um, even Russia is canceling a lot of them. Uh, and, and those are being canceled more than the military parades is. This idea that Russia is out of military gear is absurd. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just really, first of all, in these military parades, uh, there is the big one in, in Moscow, but there are smaller ones, uh, throughout the country in most major cities. But even U.S. generals this week, uh, te- in the last week, testifying before the Senate, have admitted that the Russian military is larger now than it was before the conflict began, that it has not significantly degraded. Uh, I, I mean, this is just pure propaganda. It's a, it's, it's silly stuff. Uh, it's, <laughs> yes. you know, I, I guess we have to reply to it, but it, it's, it's barely worth dignifying with that response. Um, and, Let's be honest, at least in the first six or eight months of the conflict, Russia was really keeping most of their best stuff out of the conflict because they didn't want to waste it on Ukraine, right? Always in the back of the Russian government's mind is the possibility that this ends with direct NATO-Russia conflict. And that is still very much on the table I think it gets more and more likely rather than less likely as we go on. So that is why Russia has always committed a relatively small force to what is involved still uh, compared to what they could because they are still trying to signal that they want to limit escalation and they don't want a full on direct war with NATO. But all of that attempts in my mind have been naive and, 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 uh, you know, proven wrong because NATO keeps escalating and keeps escalating and keeps escalating. Uh, the one good thing about it, I guess, is they've run through all of their own artillery stockpiles. Uh, Italy just announced, uh, this morning that, Hey, we're completely out of artillery and we got enough left to protect the country for like two days <laughs> in, in event of a conflict. And they begged the U.S. Uh, to, to rearm them with artillery shells. And the U.S. said, get in line. Because <laughs> there's a yes. few, right? That, yes. that should tell you something. Um, I, I just want to, I just want to throw out there for people who aren't, aren't, haven't been following your work that you, you had been saying for quite a while before Russia did their first mobilization, you were saying that they needed uh, way more troops involved in yes. the special military operation. You were absolutely correct about that. So I just want to let people know that you, you got that right. And when you say that they're being naive or they're, they're limiting themselves and they, they should be doing a little bit more or a lot more, uh, that is probably also correct. 
So yeah, I, I've also uh, been please thinking since 2014, and Putin yes. admitted his mistake since then that it was a mistake not to go in then as well. Trust, you know, his his he's still got some latent Germanophilia, I think, or he did have it. Uh, from his time spent in, in Germany and was far too trusting of his um, European partners, as he as he liked to call them. Uh, so, I mean, there's no problem with military gear, right? Um, that That is, the parades ever only ever showcased a handful of items anyway, right? It, it's tokenism. Yes. Uh, so that's just silly stuff. The reason why the parades is canceled is because we have seen multiple terrorist bombings hitting civilians in Russian cities, right? That is why, because they don't want the carnage of hundreds of uh, Russian civilians killed uh, uh, in the spectacle of these parades. That's particularly why, more than anything, the Immortal Regiment uh, uh, marches, uh, the, you know, the, the public uh, parades where the, you know, the the, the the public participates have been canceled um and, and and likewise the military is one because if there's one thing the Kiev regime can do they can't win on the battlefield not on any strategic or, or operational level yeah uh with their counteroffensive they can win uh you know local tactical level you know they can push through russian lines and certain places and so forth but what yeah, we'll they talk can about do that. Yeah, what they can do and what they will be doing increasingly, we're seeing it now, is asymmetric attacks, right? Attacks that are meant to sting, but primarily to generate headlines. Because, um, you know, what we've, we've heard, uh, you know, serious Western, uh, military academics talk about it, that from the very beginning of this conflict, the only hope of the Kiev regime and, and the West uh, is that Russia's political will would collapse, right? That the, the, the original plan, you know, which completely failed was the existential economic war of sanctions, which was meant to destroy the ruble and crash the Russian economy and send the Russian people out into the street. Oh my God, we can't get an Ikea or McDonald's, uh, you know, get out of here. That's right? it. Okay. Throw in the towel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So obviously that didn't happen and quite the opposite. Um, uh, th- that was a complete failure. Um, the, the other thing has been to, to generate fear, right? To generate disinformation, this constant disinformation about Russian troop levels lost has been a, a, a big, big part of, of this war of, of, you know, the psyops, right? Because that is what it is. It is a psyops against the Russian troops in the field, against, uh, you know, the Russian civilians at home. And of course, uh, to you out there listening, right? It's a battle for, for your minds because that is part of the, the, the information space is, you know, in multi-domain operation theory. It's, it's part of your brain is part of the battlefield, uh, as well. Um, and, the goal has been to make Russia believe that they're losing or, or to make Russian troops believe that other Russian troops are, are turning away from the front line or that casualties are insane and Russia is attacking in human wave attacks and everything. And even in the most recent assessment they put out, you know, this ridiculous, oh, Russia has a uh, hundred thousand casualties and 20,000 killed since December. Right. You know, and 
this is is utterly absurd and i'll tell you right away where you can tell it's propaganda and then the reporters ask well what is ukraine lost you know what is the kiev regime lost i said we're not going to talk about that they're the victims right if you're putting out one number and not the other, you are obviously not putting out objective and neutral. It's part of the propaganda war. So if you believe those yes. numbers, you're, I mean, people will, there are people who want to believe those numbers, of course, right? But at the end of the day, my always metric for judging how many, first of all, you know, you keep your ears to the ground with Telegram, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, particularly in Russia, you know, is, very critical of the government, the Russian uh, telegram channels, uh, the war bloggers uh, uh, assessing the combat, uh, you know, and, and there are some of those out there in English, right? Read uh, Slavyan Grad, Donbass, Devushka, if you don't speak Russian uh, as well. And listen to some Ukrainian ones as well on telegram if, if you can, uh, um, you know. Uh, listen to read Ukrainian uh, because it's important to know, of course, what the other side is saying as well. Uh, but um, that is one way. The other way is to take a look at a serious Western source doing a fairly serious assessment of that. And that is the BBC uh, working with Media Zona and Medusa. And Media Zona and Medusa are two of these West-backed cutout outfits. They are have always been essentially, um, you know, uh, information warriors, right? They're 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 paid, they're directed to to criticize the Russian government, you know, the R- Russian, you know, the the five percent Russian liberals, you know, that this is their representation. Uh, but they have done extensive searches, and I think you've talked about this uh, before, Brian, as well, right? They are on the ground. They've got people on the ground in Russia. They're going around to soldiers, to veterans, you know, their families' houses. They're going to cemeteries. Uh, they're checking all the, the public listings in newspapers all over the country, the social media. They're trolling everywhere, right, by trolling. They're not even trolling in this case. They're they're gathering everything. And all they have been able to find uh, at the last update I saw, maybe they've updated more recently, was about December. And for the entire conflict, they were only able to find not even 20,000 dead at at that point. Uh, And that includes Wagner and and the Donbass as well, right, where we're actually – you have to remember that, particularly in the early six months of this conflict, uh, it was primarily Ukrainians or former East Ukrainians who identify as Russian fighting other Ukrainians. And they suffered the heavy, heaviest casualties uh, because they had already been fighting for some some eight years. Now, you know, with the, the mobilization, there are more uh, Russian uh, forces in the field. Uh, but if if they can't find more than that, and those numbers largely drive with what the Russian Ministry of Defense is putting out, then that's my metric for how many Russia has lost. All right, be a little pessimistic and figure, okay, maybe it's 10% higher than that, you know, uh, so forth, right? But uh, if Western dedicated propaganda outfits that are actually looking into it uh, and have some type of methodology can't find more than that, but you've got these, uh, you know, uh, U.S. 
you know, these, uh, the Pentagon putting, oh, Russia has 150,000 casualties and Finland's, what, no, they've got 200,000 casualties. And, you know, and, and then, then you're like, well, what are your sources? Well, we're not going to talk about that. Well, their sources are the Kiev regime, right? I mean, that's, that's, but they're just repeating whatever the Kiev regime says. And, and that's what they're going with, even though they know it's ridiculous because it's part putting those numbers out is part of the propaganda war, which is why they never try to admit the, the rare slip ups when they have admitted Ukrainian casualties like Vonderland, uh, you know, they, they quickly walked back and deleted posts, uh, and the like. And I, I, seriously think that those were uh undercounts uh as well so under understand that uh you know that is is a very much uh a big part of the conflict that is going on um and and take everything that you hear with a grain of salt including including from the russian side right um i i don't trust anything until i've heard multiple sources confirm it and you know, the Russian Ministry of Defense is is not completely immune to it. Although I would say that the way that I have seen the Russian Ministry of Defense rarely outright lies. But then again, they don't outright say much at all. Right. There's a, yes. a lot of informational uh, operational discipline on the Russian side. Right. They don't rev- they don't talk on TikTok, Right. They don't. They don't talk uh, on, on Instagram, reveal where their troops are and, and, and so forth. It doesn't where, they're, where they're going to launch their next offensive and what yeah, dates and time. When the Russian, the Russian Ministry of Defense is going to lie, it's going to lie by omission. Right. That's that's where you look at. You look at what they don't say or when they say something so completely vague, like the Moskva went down due to fires. Okay, yeah, okay, what, what, what caused those fires, right? You know, that's, that's where the Russian Ministry of Defense is lies. Not so much the direct stuff. The Kiev will lie to your faith ten ways from Sunday and, and, and expect that you are so stupid and you're Western that even if you know that it's a lie, you will choose to believe it because it's the side you're on. That's, that, you know, that's the whole, whole basis there. So that's why these, these parades, uh, are canceled. Um, uh, because they, they fear, uh, terrorist attacks. They fear these asymmetric attacks. And we've seen a huge increase in sabotage attempts. Uh, there was just, uh, this morning, there was another, the FSB stopped, uh, another assassination team, uh, that was, uh, going to be targeting the head of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Uh, at the same day, we found out about uh, the drone attacks uh, on uh, the Kremlin, which I regard as symbolic. Um, uh, they we also found out that there was an assassination team targeting uh, the head, the governor of Crimea, Sonov, uh, and that was thwarted. And there's a whole every day you're hearing things like this in you know the Russian information space that don't make it to the Western mainstream media information space or headlines because they're not successful, because for the most part, they're being stopped. Or in the cases of political assassinations, uh, you know, in the former East Ukrainian territories, Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson, Zaporozhye, that have been occurring for the last nine years and ever increasing because they don't care about those people. Those, those people are, are pro-Russians, right? You know, they're, they're all brainwashed and it would be better their, their existence, you know, for the last nine years has been geopolitically inconvenient for the West and, uh, they, they will, 
happy to see them all go the way of the Odessa massacre and the West will say, oh, it's not clear what really happened, right? And and we just did celebrate the ninth anniversary of the Odessa massacre. And right after it, Zelensky had the goal to go to the Netherlands and stand at the Hague uh, and, and, and talk about justice for Ukraine. Where has the justice for the Odessa massacre been? The only ones who were ever charged and, and, and found guilty of anything were the victims, right? The vic, the, the handful of victims that survived, you know, the anti-Maidan activists who didn't, weren't burned or beat, uh, and shot as they tried to escape the fire. Those are the only ones who were actually charged and tried with anything for, for generating unrest, right? You know, uh, the people who killed them, uh, no one has ever been charged or tried. So, uh, or what really happened on the Maidan, right? Because that trial has been going on for nine years as well. And despite all the evidence showing that it was actually Peruby and uh, his uh, hired uh, guns and neo-Nazis uh, in the hotel overlooking the Maidan, you know, that that trial has was was never, of course, concluded because they putting, couldn't put together a convincing story because 90 some percent of the witnesses say, yeah, actually, the shots that hit us came came out of that building there, which was the hotel controlled by the Maidan forces. So uh, that's that, you know, the justice for the nine years of the shelling of the civilian areas uh, of Donetsk uh, and, and before that, before they were driven back Lugansk uh, as well. And I, I take that personally, uh, full disclosure for those of you who don't know out there, my, my wife, Yelena, is from Crimea. Uh, we have family there in Simferopol. And we also have family all across East Ukraine in, in the Donbass, uh, in, uh, Kharkov, in Odessa. And, um, uh, the, the people, the, the big story, the big narrative that has been completely excised purposely from the Western media and government's account is the story of the people of East Ukraine for the last nine years and, and continuing today. Yeah, and a, and a lot of Russian people have connections to Ukraine, family in Ukraine, in yes. Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine. That That is a very common thing. So it's, it's not it's, like it's, just it's your family. Yes. In East Ukraine and Western Russia, telling what is Ukrainian and what is Russian is, is impossible. Yeah. There's, there's so much, uh, you know, intermingling there. <clears throat> you, know, you know who said, you know, the, the Russian president has been, you know, pilloried and Tried, they, they, you know, absurdly, they they try to present him as some type of uh, modern day, you know, a, a genocidal figure for saying that Russians and Ukrainians are essentially one people historically, culturally, linguistically. Do you know who else said that? Zelensky. Zelensky <laughs> said that on the campaign trail. It's on YouTube. The video is still out there. He said war between us is unthinkable because Russians and Ukrainians are essentially the same people. Right. He, he said that himself. Right. Before he inherited a regime that was built on West Ukrainian uh, 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 Banderite vanguard. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I, I don't know. Has it been Stockholm syndrome that he's internalized? You know what it was that that has um 
you know, sustained sustained the the Maidan Putsch to begin with. You know, that brought it to power and has kept it there. What whatever has happened to him since, I I, I don't know uh, how the man can can live with himself. To be to be perfectly honest, because he he's a, from a ethnic, you know, a mixed Russian Ukrainian ethnic family from Dnipropetrovsk in in East Ukraine, right? Yeah, we all know that he can't possibly have. Uh, neo-Nazi forces uh, in his military and security services and throughout his government and and be pilling medals on them uh, because his daddy was Jewish, right? I mean, that's 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 the the I, I think the biggest brand management that they got with Zelensky um, to to whitewash and apologize away the the nature of of the underpinning ideology of of uh you know banderism that undergirds this regime and you know that 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 banderite um you know uh ideology institutionalized you know brought into the military uh the security services the internal affairs the mainstream maidan political parties um uh you know azov is the biggest, uh, and, uh, you know, the best known, the national cores is their, their political movement. And, and, um, you know, one of the big canards that is always put out is that, oh, you know, the far right only gains a few points in election. Yeah. The actual far right parties, because most of the Ukrainian people are not far right. The majority of the Ukrainian people do not actually believe this, but they've hijacked the state regardless. And they're infiltrated throughout the main your uh, Maidan political parties. The rest of the yes. party, the rest of the political parties in the country now all being banned. Right, everything that is was not a Maidan party. All the pro, you know, the pro-Russian East Ukrainian parties, uh, all of the leftist parties in the country, they've all been banned. Everything. I mean, the, the idea that they present this uh, as a democracy is is an obscene joke, right? Um, but um, Perubi, Perubi, that the head neo-Nazi, the co-founder of of uh, the Svoboda Party, um, uh, you know, he is number two on Poroshenko's party, right? He visited and was feted by the Congress in the U.S. and Canada and and the U.K. Uh, by the Parliament there. So, um, I mean, they're infiltrated all through the the mainstream uh, political parties, and they have been called a neo-Nazi state within a state. And who called them that? 2019, 2018 or 2019, look it up. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty did. (laughs) Back in a day when there was more honest reporting uh, 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 still about Ukraine, despite everything that was going on. So uh, Azov, uh, uh, neo-Nazi state within a state, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, it's still up there. You know, the the Western media's 15-minute memory, of course, it has been excised from the narrative. Uh, but, you know, that that is uh, what, you know, continues uh, to drive uh, the regime in Kiev uh, from today. Yeah, and, and by the way, all of that talk about uh, you, the similarities and ties between Ukraine and Russia, that's what actually got Zelensky elected, elected. The, the Russian-speaking population. On peace. Exactly. People wanted peace. It was a bait and switch. The West other thing I Ukraine. want to point out. West Ukraine, 
the population voted for Poroshenko. Take a look at the polls. It was yes. the East Ukraine that voted for Zelensky because he promised peace. And, you know, when you get that kind of shell game, what what, what can you do? The You know, uh, election, the managed, you know, democracy where where, you know, I mean, I, I myself have always heard it said that, you know, elections under the barrel of a gun have no legitimacy. Well, elections in Ukraine since the Maidan have been held not just literally under the barrel of a gun, but under the shelling of grad multiple launch rocket systems and neo-Nazi Azov and the dozens of other far-right battalion jackboots as well. During Zelensky's election, the election monitors in Ukraine, or at least among them, were Azov. They were officially election monitors in the country. So um, suddenly elections, you know, where part of the population is literally there is a war being waged against them by the regime that seized power in Kiev because they never accepted the overthrow of the government that they had democratically elected. But somehow those elections are legitimate. Get out of here. I mean, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I want to I want to point something else out, out before we get into what's going on on the, on the ground uh, on the battlefields. Uh, people say, well, you know, the the far right, the Nazis, they don't have political representation. Their parties aren't uh, in power in Kiev. But the problem is, the parties that are in power, they have incorporated Azov yeah. officially in the Ukrainian military. They provide them a budget. They give them arms and ammunition. Yeah. So. Uh, they're all complicit, you know. To, not not, not uh, just that. If yeah. you take a look at the membership in the Duma, in the city councils of the people who are in the mainstream political parties, they are the far right, right? Yes. They don't run in the far right parties, only the, you know, the direct militants of the organization do, right? All of the people who used to be in Svoboda and all these other political parties, they, they joined per, Poroshenko's European Solidarity Party or... Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the former Timoshenko's fatherland party, or the, these are all, they're all West Ukrainian ultranationalist parties now. And still, even in the last week, Zelensky is arresting Poroshenko's, uh, uh, p- uh, uh, political people still because he's that much of a petty tyrant. Not, not because there, there has emerged any ideological difference between what Poroshenko was doing and what Zelensky picked up, but because he's a petty tyrant and he has a, a personal grudge against Poroshenko, even though he ended up doing the same thing and more as soon as he, as he, uh, assumed power in the regime. Uh, and yes, you know, that, that has gone, you know, even Poroshenko, Zelensky, he, he charged the leaders of the two largest parties other than his own in the country, the Eastern Ukrainian opposition bloc and Poroshenko's European Solidarity Party with treason, right? He charged both of them with treason and had them both arrested. And Poroshenko was quietly uh, released, you know, in the, but the charges never went away. Because, uh, you know, the West complained about it behind closed doors. You know, hey, it's not a good look. And he did his job for us. So, you know, let, let him go. And, and he's decamped to Europe uh, since then. Uh, him and his family and his, his fighting age uh, sons, of course. Uh, but the leader of the East Ukrainian 
opposition block, right? It took years for the party of regions, the party that had been elected in Ukraine, to reform after the lustration of the Maidan. They start building up strength again, finally, after years, as the opposition bloc. And uh, the head of their party is charged with treason. And then once the intervention began, they actually traded him a East Ukrainian politician, uh, the leader of the political opposition in the country. They traded him to Russia in a, a, a what was essentially a POW exchange, right? And it, it happened at the same time. So, I mean, obviously that's what happened. And and then the, the the you know it was that of course was completely ignored by you know the Western media and excused away and no one ever you know why are East Ukrainian because there is no democracy there is no freedom of anything in Ukraine and there hasn't been because the geopolitical flipping of Ukraine that occurred with the Maidan could never be allowed to be revisited again. So all political opposition in the country had to be squashed, right? They tried softer ways at first. You know, the Communist Party was banned. The Party of Region was lustrated uh, and, and every leftist party in the country. But then they let the, the, the you know, the Party of Regions reform as the opposition bloc up until they uh, became a threat again. And polls were showing them being the most popular party in the country. Then they shut them down. They charged the leader with treason. They completely shut down all media in the country uh, that was critical of of the Maidan regime. And, you know, and, and still they, they present this as some type of of, uh, you know, freedom crusade, saving, saving democracy in the world from Russia and this, this other, uh, you know, propagandistic, uh, obscene, obscene, uh, nonsense, uh, that has uh, no relation, uh, to the reality of Ukraine, uh, you know, today or, or for the last nine years. So uh, this is a really good background, uh, the political facade that is Ukraine from 2014 onward, uh, trying to camouflage it as, uh, you know, an advance toward democracy, uh, ignoring all of these transgressions uh, internally, politically, against opposition, against media. What about on the battlefield? There's a a facade taking place there as well. So I I have some points here of, of recent things that have been going on. We, we saw the, uh, the, the, the spokesman, I guess, or is he actually leading uh, Wagner Fragosian talking about a May 10th withdrawal from Bakhmut? But it's not as if they're giving up Bakhmut. They're just they're claiming they're going to hand it over to Russian forces. Uh, I want to hear your take on that. Uh, and talk about the nature of the fighting. I talk about this all the time, but I, I want to kind of hear your take on this also. Uh, Ukraine's obsession, you kind of talked about it a little bit, the obsession with political optics and seizing territory versus the the nature of the actual conflict, which is a, a war of attrition. And then maybe we can talk about uh, the the offensive, um, the different scenarios you see playing out uh, and maybe some points about these Western main battle tanks they think are going to change the, the tide of the fighting and uh, whatever else you feel uh, is appropriate. Go ahead, Mark. All right. So, I mean, I mentioned before, and and Brian, you know, as well as I do, of course, the Russian side does disinformation too, right? I mean, that's, that's the nature of war. And I, I mentioned that the Russian ministry of defense rarely lies outright and loudly. 
what Prigozhin is for. <laughs> That's what Wagner is for. Okay, so anyway, if there's any pro-Ukrainian, pro, pro, I'm sorry, because it's not about Ukraine. There are tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting against the Kiev regime and have been for nine years. Uh, if there's any pro, you know, uh, West-backed Maidan Putsch people still out there listening after, uh, you know, 40 minutes, uh, could you... You know, scattle along now, uh, because I'm, I'm gonna, you know, divulge a little, a little, uh, <laughs> Russian, uh, you know, known, but, you know, uh, not talked about secret here. Uh, you know, Prigozhin does, has, is, an, as well as being an effective, you know, founder, you know, leader, if you will, at least in the, in the PR sense of, of Wagner, um, he, um, he is the biggest vehicle for disinformation. Russian generals don't talk, right, to the press. They don't throw insults at Kiev, right? They don't play this game. Um, that's what Prigozhin does. <laughs> and if you believe for a second that a commander of Russian forces in the field, whether he is leading a PMC, or, you know, uh, an actual general is allowed to say things like this that might showcase Russian weakness if it was true and telegraph it to the Kiev regime and the West and the world all the time and and not be removed, not be shut up, not have Putin call him up and say, hey, can it or we'll get you out of there. Then then, you know, the, then you're a chump. Uh, so. Take everything. It's not to say that everything Prigozhin says is is false, right? Like like any source of disinformation, a great deal of it has to be true. But all of this talk about Wagner not having enough artillery shells, about withdrawing because they need to lick their wounds, and you know all of this, um, and him yelling at Shoigu and yelling at the defense ministry. This is all theater. This is performance art. It's because Russia wants you, the Kiev regime to launch more of their upcoming offensive against the Bakhmut area than elsewhere, right? Because that's where they feel most comfortable. They have a large assemblage of forces, you know, on the flanks, behind the lines, while Wagner is finishing off the urban assault. And, you know, this, this oh, we're all out of artillery, so we're going to pull back after May 10th. Well, yeah, because the urban assault is done with, right? All, you know, all but, you know, and, and by then it will be. The Kiev regime controls three blocks left in Bakhmut. That is what they control. The most formidable being, uh, the citadel, which is a, uh, in the very south of West Bakhmut, you know, the fringe that they have left, which is a number of tightly packed, tall residential buildings that they have, you know, come turned into a fortress, right? So since very beginning, although they were they were told to shut up, Amnesty International has admitted that the Kiev regime turns every building and hospital and school into a base and firing point and, and so forth, which is a war crime, but you know, we we won't acknowledge that because, you know, uh, you know, all those accusations are 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 geopolitical. They're they're not 
they don't really have any legitimacy. And Amnesty International was told to shut up uh, when they admitted this in the beginning. Well, this is, you know, has always been the case. Um, and the Kiev regime has turned every single building, uh, you know, in the cities that they're defending into a firing point, right? The Russian forces, the Wagner, you know, the Donbass forces, you know, whoever they have to go, uh, building by building, floor by floor, room by room. And, and let's be frank, this is what part of the whole problem that I always argued that Russia should have gone in in 2014 is now the war is taking place in East Ukraine and they have to destroy East Ukraine to get the regime out. That's the way they're fighting for it. And that sounds awful. That actually sounds like U.S. Vietnam uh, propaganda in a way, except that the people of East Ukraine still support Russia there and want these people gone. And Russia is immediately beginning as best they can the rebuilding in Mariupol and everywhere since. But, but of course, that tremendous economic cost. Uh, but this citadel is the, the, the last, but they're, they're not going to storm it. Uh, you know, the, the, that's absolutely not needed. They're, they're swinging around, uh, to the southwest around it to cut off the supplies to it, uh, to, to, uh, you know, um, once they run out of ammunition, you know, then, then they won't. And if they don't, then they'll use the method they have been using elsewhere in Ugladar and Bakhmut. There are no civilians left there. So they will use, uh, the Sunsepyok, the, uh, Tulse 1A thermobaric flamethrower. Uh, or the new, you know, the uh, Fab 500 or 250 uh, glide bombs that Russia has started using to great effect. Um, uh, they'll just use those on the remaining and level it. That's what they're doing in, in uh, Ugladar after several failed attempts uh, to storm the, um, again, the, the tightly packed residential buildings turned into fortresses there. Um, they're just destroying Ugladar building by building because there aren't any civilians left for them, them to worry about at this stage uh, where there have been uh, at least until, you know, the last half a year or so. Uh, so um, they, Prigozhin is opening his mouth and talking a lot of smack uh, uh, because Russia wants the Kiev regime to think they are weak there and they want to attack them there. Yes, they probably are going to pull Wagner out after May 10th because their job will be done. And until there is another, another urban assault needed, which is what Wagner specializes in, they won't be needed again until Kramatorsk or Slavyansk, which is probably half a year away, right? Or, or more. Uh, so they won't be needed and they'll be sent, you know, to the rear to, to regroup and, and get in more recruits and, 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 you know, train and, and, you know, for the next stage. But they are a specialized urban assault force and their job will be done in Bakhmut. And if they're trying to signal some type of weakness, oh, there is going to be a rotation going on, which is always a potential, you know, moment to take advantage of when the other side needs or is about to do a rotation of troops. And, and also they're, you know, they're adding to it all this claims. Oh, you know, we're, we're being pulled back and we don't have enough artillery and that's why artillery shells, 
That's all nonsense. There's nothing to support that from the battlefield, from the evidence of Wagner's use of artillery or the Russian uh, military's use of artillery now on the flanks. Because for the past uh, five, six weeks now, Wagner was withdrawn just into Bakhmut, where the Russian uh, main uh, army took up the flanks defending you know, the approaches to Bakhmut uh, from from the north uh, and the south. Uh, so uh, Wagner was left to just concentrate on what they're specialized on. And now that Bakhmut is done, they've earned their rest. But they've decided to make a little bit of political theater out, there, out of this to goad. I mean, Prigozhin has constantly been goading. Uh, the Kiev regime forces and Zelensky personally. Don't, don't pull your, don't withdraw your forces. Don't pull them out here. Stay and fight for the city a little bit more. He's been saying that for months, right? You know, because uh, it was a meat grinder. It was a, a, uh, a fire bag, whatever you want to call it. And the attrition rate, whatever the Western mainstream media may try to, to lie about it, was 8 to 1, 10 to 1 in, in the Russian favor because of the overwhelming artillery uh, advantage. Uh, you know, it's an artillery war. No, Russia was not attacking in human wave attacks, not even with the Wagner members that were, you know, um, former prisoners, uh, you know, who were, uh, you know, brought uh, into Wagner for that specific, you know, urban assault fortress. Yeah, they were fighting as urban assault infantry, but they were only sent in after everything was completely leveled for weeks ahead of the time with artillery and rocket systems and the like. There was no human wave attacks against heavily defended Ukrainian positions or lines before they had been softened as much as possible with artillery. That's, that's just, it's playing to Western caricatures are also false about the way that the Soviet Union fought in World War II and it plays conveniently into the the casualty disinformation uh, that's being put out. So take everything that Prigozhin says with a grain of salt. Like I said, not everything he says is false. The same thing uh, Medvedev. Medvedev well, is the president and prime minister who was once known and hated by myself uh, for being a neoliberal and a not even much of a closet liberal, right? A Russian uh, president who says his favorite band is Deep Purple, and it was seen in a video dancing to a, a popular tune at the song uh, back in, in whenever American Boy. Come on, right? But since the the firebrand Russian politician, the head of the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, which wasn't liberal, wasn't democratic, wasn't really a party. It was a cult of personality. But once Zhirinovsky died, they needed a new firebrand. And so they've rebranded Medvedev as the new Zhirinovsky. And he has been talking a lot of smack. And I have to admit, I find myself liking a lot of Medvedev uh, says uh, except when he talks about nuclear weapons, and then, then I wish he would just shut up because Russia's not going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, no matter what. It's just not going to happen. Um, but it's he's the new Zhirinovsky. And the same way, if there's anyone talking smack uh, and putting out disinformation on the Russian side, it's Prigozhin and Medvedev, right? Uh, they're they're the the rabble rousers, if you will. Uh, so 
I'm not saying ignore what they say because some of it will inevitably be true as the source with any bit of disinformation like that, but understand what you're dealing with. And if there's any uh, pro Kiev regime out there, you you can come back now. So, so Mark, I mean, I, I kind of suspect that it, it's a bit of a psyop also, but uh, who's going to fall for it? I mean, I, uh, no, of course, probably. You, you, Ukraine has to launch their offensive. Yeah. It looks like that could be a potential place where they launch it. Um, is is this meant to target the, the psyche of the Ukrainian troops on the ground? So the commanders surely won't. Well, they'll be extremely cautious with, with this narrative, right? Hey, the Pentagon, the quote unquote Pentagon leaks narrative management done through the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Politico and the like, who are evidently the only ones who have the actual tranches of these supposedly leaked mm-hmm. documents, right? Um, that revealed to us almost nothing new information, right? Everything that has been released before, right? A, a lot of it again true in the nature of disinformation. Very few Russian analysts regard that as a serious, right? They they feel that this was a crude piece of disinformation meant to lull Russian where the, the, the disinformation included in the sweetener was about the disposition of Kiev regime troops, the level of training of individual units, where their ammunition and their artillery shells were located and so forth. Did they believe that the Russians would believe it? Not really, but you make an effort, right? <laughs> um, Russians certainly haven't fallen for it. Um, but because of the nature of this conflict with so much satellite information on both sides, right? Because Kiev gets everything straight, uh, from, from the U.S., the amount of effective signals intelligence, the, uh, particularly on the Russian side, the amount of uh, human intelligence, Right. Uh, with the thousands of collaborators that the Kiev regime keeps rooting out and purging from their government bodies and the cities and everything. It's very hard. And, and the amount of drone reconnaissance and, and AWACS and their equivalents on both sides. It's very hard to do anything that you genuinely on any anything above the tactical level can generate surprise. In this conflict, right? Everything is, is telegraphed. You can see, we can't see it, but they can see it, right? Yes. Um, you know, they, they see the movement of troops. They see the movement of, of equipment and, and everything. Everything is telegraphed in advance. So you have to generate surprise when and how you can. And any little bit of disinformation that makes the other side doubt is, is worth playing on this side, whether it's the Pentagon leaks or whether it's Prigozhin talking uh, uh, you know, uh, out of his butt. Um, uh, well, what, well, what if the, those leaks from the Pentagon, what if, what if that was them attempting to build some sort of off ramp for themselves? Although I can't see that they, they want to end this in, in any way, but, uh, what do you I say to people, who, who, people who may suspect that? The lefty Russian camp that would like to believe that this is some attempt uh, for the Biden administration to construct itself an off-ramp. I do not see it. I do not believe it. Mark Milley just, again, the second time this week, he said outright that a, a Russian victory in Ukraine would be the end of the 
rules-based order, i.e. U.S.-led Western global military hegemony. That is what they feel is on the line. Uh, they, I mean, how many times have we heard them trying to draw parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan and some type of modern domino theory that if uh, uh, Ukraine falls, then Taiwan will fall. And, you know, and that that that's it. Right. The the the, the holds that the U.S. had uh, to to uh, contain, to pressure, uh, you know, to uh, to to uh, weaponize against Russia and China. It's too you know, near pure adversaries, you know, uh, it would be gone. Uh, and, and, and that would be, you know, the end game. If they believe that they will keep throwing whatever they can and have in look at a good way to look at what a, I, I'm, I'm don't have rosy eyed views about uh, the end of this conflict. I don't believe it will ever really end, not in our lifetimes. We may see periods of frozen conflict, temporary armistices and ceasefires, uh, you know, at, at some point. I don't think anytime soon, uh, but that, even that will just be temporary. All right. Uh, I, I think Ukraine will be a, it was, it is the proverbial Humpty Dumpty that was pushed off the wall. That being the internal external balance between Ukrainian national identity conception and geopolitics, you know, east side of the country, west side of the country. Once that fell, you can't put it back together. So, you know, and, and any partition of the country will, will, uh, you know, whatever lines those are will, will never be accepted permanently by the other side. Uh, so I, I don't have any rosy eyed views about, about the end of this conflict and even what a Russian victory would look like doesn't look like what I think a lot of people might hope, uh, that it looks like. Uh, but take a look at what Russian victory in Syria looks like. Exactly. Yeah. U.S. permanently occupying, uh, East Syria to deny the ability of Syria to reconstruct, right? And, and also, you know, always as this idea that they're somehow by camping out there, they're somehow inhibiting Iran and, 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 and so forth. Although I, I never bought that as a, as a only stupid neocons who have, have no idea of the way militaries work, you know, think that, that kind of thing. Uh, but, um, that, that is the Russian victory with still, uh, the, uh, Syrian government only in control of about 70% of the country with, uh, uh, Turkey still occupying all of North Syria and still not giving any indication that they're, they're willing to give that up, right? They're, they, they actually still expect to, to argue, we'll normalize relations with Damascus as long as you make all of North Syria and Idlib our little autonomous uh, region uh, that, you know, uh, we may pretend still is part of Syria, but everyone agrees that it's really run out of, of Ankara. That's that's the, their game there. And the U.S. never obviously intends to pull out of East Syria uh, as well, um, not until some radical change in U.S. Uh, politics, which I don't see as possible, uh, you know, in again, any anytime soon, right? maybe 20 years from now. You know, like like with Afghanistan, something like that. Uh, but that is what victory, even if this 
offensive, uh, the Ukrainian offensive fails to achieve success, whatever that looks like, because no one has ever firmly defined what Ukrainian success with this offensive looks like. I don't believe in their success. I think it will be a hard fought, bloody battle, but I don't believe they're going to take Melitopol. I don't believe they're going to divide the land bridge. I'm, I'm actually more worried about them taking Energodar and the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant with a swing crossing of, of the Niper uh, amphibiously, which they've demonstrated the ability to do in the last few weeks, at least on some level, and then a sharp swing down uh, uh, from Zaporozhia, but then cutting uh, the uh, flank there. Um, and if they can drive Russian forces, then they can come down around a lot of these fortified lines in uh, northern Zaporozhia and and just do an end run, you know, like like the the Nazis, the original Nazis, anyway, around the Maginot line, right? Um, that those are I'm, whether that will be successful, I can't say. But those are the things I worry more about than them successfully charging echeloned Russian defense across the open steppe of of, of Zaporozhia towards Melitopol. Um, but, um, you know, they, let's say that it's successful. Let's say it's not successful. What after that? Everyone says that NATO can't continue. They can't sustain another offensive after this. Take that with a grain of salt. I don't believe that they can sustain another offensive, but does that mean they're going to stop providing what aid they can as they can provide it? No. And it may be less than it is now. Let's say that the counter offense, the, well, the, it's actually an offensive, uh, West, I, I myself started using that counter offensive nonsense because the Western mainstream, everything Ukraine does has now been redefined as a counter offensive, uh, in, uh, you know, defiance of what the words offensive and counter offensive actually mean in military terminology. Let's say it doesn't succeed, uh, by any measure, um, and then, uh, Russia, um, I don't think Russia has enough forces on hand to then begin a major, certainly not a big arrow offensive after that. And I continue to worry that Russia has not launched new waves of mobilization, which makes me afraid that the Kremlin may be planning then to go to negotiations and some type of uh, uh, bull feces uh, Minsk three, which the Russian people will very much be against, but, until I see more rounds of mobilization, then then I don't believe that that Russia intends to move further into Ukraine after this is over. But if the success offensive fails and they can't support another offensive immediately, does that mean that they look for an off ramp and get out and just surrender and say, Russia, OK, you've got. You've got Ukraine, unconditional surrender, or, or you've got Ukraine up to the Niper, you know, right? No, no. They continue supporting what they can, and the Kiev regime goes on the complete defensive then, without even talking about offensive for maybe a year or two or three or whatever it takes. And if Russia does sign something, it <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. We've already seen that. They signed the Minsk Accords, too. They signed the February 21st agreement. They signed the JCPOA with Iran. They signed the Short Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, and the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty. Nothing that they sign is worth wiping your butt with. I'm sorry. 
Um, they have said outright, they keep saying it again. As soon as this conflict is over, we'll bring Ukraine into NATO. As soon as this conflict is over, we'll provide them with F-16s and all the Abrams they can send them. Why, why should Russia ever agree to negotiations then unless they, they don't, they're so afraid, which I, I think they still are, of direct conflict with, with NATO at some point. I think either they continue supporting the regime at a lower level, or if Russia then looks to escalate big, then they send uh, a coalition of the willing troops, U.S., Poland, the Baltics, the U.K., Romania, whatever, as peacekeepers into West Ukraine, possibly to Kiev, and the worst case scenario into Odessa to preserve a port city for a Ukrainian rump state. And there, all that Russia has been trying to avoid by limiting their escalation throughout this conflict, all the signaling they have tried to do and has been completely ignored by Western governments and media that our intentions are limited, just, you know, this is what we said, and if you'll just do that, no, you know, they... They have never had any intention of occupying all of East Ukraine, all of Ukraine, not even all of East Ukraine. They never even wanted Zaporozhye and Kherson. It kind of fell into their hands uh, because of their abortive strategy, uh, in, in these thunder runs and, and uh, uh, intelligence in, in the beginning of the conflict. And you saw them retreat away from Kherson city and Kharkov in the north when they did it. Here's the problem with territorial occupation in this conflict. That's the war that, that the Kiev regime is fighting, but you know, from their side, maybe it makes sense, uh, because it, it is, or the Kiev regime believes it, it is their country anyway. Russia has been fighting a war of attrition. If you take over territory, you have to defend it. Right? That is a major manpower draw. And certainly in the beginning of the conflict, it, it, in Kherson city and, and Kharkov, Russia wasn't, didn't have that manpower until the, you know, the, the, the mobilization of reservists, uh, in, uh, you know, last autumn. Um, there are also huge economic costs. You are economically responsible for the people living there and you assume that the economy is all but non-existent. So there is a huge cost there as well. So yeah, you, you lose and, and, and the, the, the opening up potential territory for more guerrilla and sabotage attacks and, and the like. There is a huge cost to taking territory, which is why Russia has been trying to fight this war of attrition instead of a war of territorial conquest because they never wanted to conquer Ukraine. They want, they would have preferred a better government in Ukraine, uh, you know, and, if they believe that any, you know, piece of paper that Kiev signed that, oh, we won't join NATO would have, would have ever, um, you know, settled things at, at the end of this conflict, then there is, they're as naive as they were when they signed the original Minsk Accords. So I, I don't know there, but there is a problem by not taking territory as well. And that is the Kiev regime can continue press ganging, forcibly constricting uh, people 
for still a couple years easily into the future. They're having problems with it. But if you take a, a look at the regional spread of the Kiev regime's forced conscription into the military, it is overwhelmingly towards areas that are Russian-speaking. Odessa, Kharkov, and, and to the Hungarian ethnic minority, which have always, you know, at least, uh, you know, in terms of elections, they've been anti-Kiev and, and pro-East Ukraine electorally because they also are an ethnic minority in, in, in the country. Um, that They can continue to do that. They can continue to, to forcibly constrict large numbers of manpower, go on the defensive. The West can continue to, so that Russia has to take every city building by building and city by city. I don't believe they will ever give up. I, I do not believe that they will unconditionally surrender. If they did, I don't think it would mean anything. That's why I have no clear idea what a victory for the Russian side looks like in this conflict. And that's not me blackpilling and, and uh, saying I'm against the Russian government. I'm not. Jesus. <laughs> right. Uh, that is me being a fatalist and a realist and a cynic uh, uh, about where this ends. And let's say that Russia did take all of East Ukraine, brought home all, you know, the, the you know, the majority of the population there, you know, Varying levels as you go further west, you know, w- you know, willing to either happy or willing to accept that. But the economic cost then of rebuilding a war shattered East Ukraine is huge. Russia, that is outside of Russia's economic possibilities, right? Uh, you know, to be honest, I mean, it, it would mean a, a huge national reprioritization of the economy. Um, and anyone who believes that China is just going to gift us, I mean, however strong the strategic partnership is, they're still really cutthroat businessmen, right? Um, they're not just going to hand over tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions, you know, without, you know, um, serious, uh, concessions, uh, to rebuild East Ukraine either. So, I don't have a clear idea where this conflict ends, which is why I don't believe it does, right? Uh, Whether that's with a Kiev regime fighting on after this offensive fails for years or with the West moving into uh, West Ukraine directly. um, Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have any type of, of rosy uh, projection, which doesn't mean I don't think it should be fought. I think it should be escalated. I think Russia needs to call NATO on their escalation um, and maybe hope that they restrict a movement of NATO forces into just West Ukraine, because it'd be perfectly obvious, uh, uh, you know, honest, I, I, I think a Russian occupation of West Ukraine, where they really do hate Russians, would be a, a disaster, right? And the Soviet Union and and uh, 50 years of the Soviet Union couldn't get the banderism out of out of West Ukraine. I, certainly, uh, uh, the relatively uh, you know uh, passive and and uh, uh, soft Putin. Uh, is is not capable of getting the banderism out of West Ukraine. But whatever Ukraine is left, 
you know, at, at whatever end this comes through, NATO is going to arm it as a weapon against Russia into the future. They're going to train entire generations of whatever rump state youth is to be an anti-Russian uh, vanguard. And Russia can't, unfortunately, erase all of it. This is the truth of geopolitics that Russia has has realized with Belarus and the West. To the West, to the U.S., a neutral, these uh, an idea of a neutral border ground between Russia and NATO was no longer acceptable. A neutral Ukraine, which Ukraine was by their constitution up until 2014, not allowed to join foreign military blocs, um, was no longer acceptable. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had, they made an abortive attempt to geopolitically flip Ukraine in 2005 with the Orange Revolution, uh, two years prior to that with the Rose Revolution as well. This was a more thorough measure against Ukraine and they don't intend to back away from it. Russia has realized that there are no gray spaces left on the map. If you don't take those spaces, then the U.S. will and will weaponize them against you, right? Finland, not allowed to be neutral anymore, brought into NATO. There are no neutral. They're grabbing. They know what geopolitical window, the 10 to 15 years they have uh, until they can no longer do this type of thing. And they're taking full advantage of it now, which is why Russia, you know, once had a very loose union state with Belarus and is now bringing them further into the fold after the very uh, early sprung and and very poorly organized attempt to overthrow the Belarusian government during uh, Lukashenko's last elections there, um, where, you know, uh, the whole thing was Russia realized that if we let Belarus be flipped, it will be weaponized against us. Uh, just like Ukraine. And exactly you know, that's the truth. And already the U.S. is getting involved in, in Georgia. And uh, some, uh, the uh, Samantha Powers and USAID are, are now looking at, uh, you know, reinforcing their own block and, and deploying in Hungary. Uh, so, you know, that's that's the game now. And I think the Chinese really need to pay attention. Um, and if you'll see how much South Korea and Japan are now being brought into the Ukraine conflict and NATO having run out of stocks and not able to pers- to uh, effectively artillery shell arm Ukraine going forward, they're now talking up uh, uh, the new pro-American president of South Korea, Yoon, you know, he of the American pie song. Uh, if, for those of you who, who caught that, if there's anything more syncophantic, um, he, um, they're, they're pressing him to deliver, uh, arms to Ukraine directly. What he has been doing is simply giving it to Poland, selling it to Poland or selling it to Greece. And then they've been transferring it or, you know, their own equivalents, you know, on, onto, uh, Ukraine. Uh, they're doing the same thing now with Japan. Um, and the Philippines just opened four new American military bases under Marcos Jr. Um, and, um, the U.S. is pressing Japan to put short range, uh, um, uh, ballistic missiles, uh, uh on, uh, you know, the, uh, southern uh, Japan islands. 
Um, so they are, are trying, you know, the, the same thing there and the, the Chinese have better wake up and, and realize how much is on the line and it's on the line now. Um, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, they are providing more support to Russia behind the scenes or at least are ready to, uh, because it's, it's, uh, all geopolitically coming down now in the next five now and, and, and for the next five years. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you, I think you said it though. I mean, people in the comment section, they're, they're saying how bleak this is, but this is, it this is, is realistic. All right. This is very realistic. Call me. This is what's happening. The, the U.S. is ruthless. They, this is their last shot. This is the window of opportunity closing. They're all in. Just like you said, no one's allowed to be neutral. You, you're either with us or you're against us. And they're making their big move everywhere in East, uh, Eastern Europe, Europe in general, and in the Pacific. We, we can see this happening. But at the same time, we, we see NATO depleting their, their land force, what they have for land forces, and they're saving up everything that they will need for a potential conflict with China. So everyone is kind of hunkering down. Yeah. And, uh, try, That's trying right. to, yeah, in Russia also. So this is this is where we are. And people who think this is going to be over like this year or next year, I mean, no, it's not. This is this is a, something that is is going to continue grinding on, and we still have to wait for the U.S. to do whatever it's going to do regarding China, using using the island province of Taiwan as their proxy of choice. In, there, so in I, order to yeah. occupy just the rest of East Ukraine, right? Kharkov, Dnepropetrovsk, Odessa. Russia will need at least 500 to 600,000 more troops. Until I see the next wave of mobilization in Russia, right? And I'm not talking about, you know, manly recruitment ads and, 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 uh, Wagner, you know, recruitment and the like until I, I see that. And Russia has it. Russia at the beginning of this conflict had two million reservists available to call up even you know before it even started looking at, it, at anything civilian right and of course that self regenerates a couple hundred thousand every year with you know the, you know the, the new uh, um, uh, draftees serving their one year of military service and so forth and they've only pulled up 300,000 of them there's another 1.7 million reservists at least that could be called up at this point. And whatever they may say, I, I know one of the big attempts to uh, disinfo this this recent uh, symbolic attack on the Kremlin. No, it wasn't a serious attempt to assassinate Putin, but it was part of a symbolic, you know, we're hitting the Kremlin, we're hitting the Russian flag tower, and Russia still has to treat it like an attack on the head of state, just like the U.S. would if someone you know, flew a drone into the White House, right? You know, they would, yes. they would invade several countries as, as, after yes. that, right? You know, um, but it's, um, that is, is part of, uh, you know, this, this, uh, disinformation, uh, project. It is, it is about the symbolism and the whole hope of Ukraine from the beginning has been trying to, make the Kremlin politically give up this fight that they couldn't win 
a long war of attrition. And I, I don't mean the conflict ends this year. It doesn't. I know there have been people, there have been some military analysts on our side who last February said, oh, this will be over in two months. And, um, uh, you know, Russia will run over Kiev and then, oh, it'll be over by the fall. And now it's, it'll, yeah. oh, it'll be over by late summer, or by the end of the year. And from last February, I said it would be a forever war. And which didn't mean that I didn't think it needed, didn't need to be fought. I absolutely did. But I just have a very cynical, fatalist, realist perspective over, you know, what that really means in, in military terms, in economic terms, in political terms. And it all, all goes together. Yeah. And I, I think comparing it to Syria is appropriate. And we, we see how long that's dragged on. We can see how it's been managed. And how it is in, in favor of Russia, uh, Syria, Iran, and how things are tilting in their favor. But it's a very incremental, long-term process. And I, I believe it's going to be even a, a longer-term process in Ukraine because the stakes are so much higher and everything is on such a larger scale. People act as if, uh, you know, this is... And a so much more is at stake. It, yeah, exactly. And Ukraine, when you look at Ukraine versus, say, Iraq... The U.S. went into Iraq with many more troops. It's a much smaller country geographically in terms of population. Uh, Russia went into Ukraine, a much larger country with a larger population, a better trained, better equipped military with fewer troops. This is something people have to understand, uh, the scale of what's going on in Ukraine. And it, it is not just as, as easy as just moving across the map as I think some people uh, may, may wish it was. So uh, we're... A, Coming up to about the the one and a half hour mark, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. I kind of should we mention this made... drone, this Byractor over Kiev? Yes, yes, let's do that because uh, some people are saying, "Well, was the 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 drone attack on the Kremlin was that a false flag?" No, it is, and everything Ukraine has done since 2014 onward okay. has been to provoke Russia. This there, is no different. The Russian much... government has so much domestic support. Right. The recent polls out 80 percent support for, yes. for uh, yes. you know, the, the military. State. Russia does not need anything to to provide political capital, to provide a justification for the escalation. The Russian people want right. Not all of them, of course, but a majority of the Russian people want the Russian government to escalate now and to get this over with faster. They They don't want any more drawn out periodic humiliations and psyops they they want this done uh and if we're going to do it do it big do it loud do it quick and get it over with that's that's the way the russian people like and uh, you know i mean they trust putin but at the same time uh, they are more than than willing right there will always be the five percent you know you you saw oh my god uh, a hundred thousand Russians, uh, fled, uh, the country when Russia called up the mobilization. Yeah, that's the five percent, the Russian liberals they left. Most of them were never going to be subject anyway because they haven't done military service. They're not reservists anyway. Ninety nine percent of those who fled would, would never be called up anyway. Those, those aren't the Russian, uh, patriots. Those are the Russians, the five percent who wished they lived in Europe. Right. And a lot of yes. them left the country, which is why actually there have been so few protests and, and the like. It's been, been very quiet in Russia for the last yes. year. 
uh, you know, those of us who are really sick of the 5% are, are quite happy with, with that state of affairs. They self left. Great. Problem solved. Um, so, um, but, um, so, so what was not a false flag? They didn't need it was not a false, a false flag. flag. Absolutely. And, Absolutely and they haven't, they haven't capitalized on it either. Yeah. The big question flag. is, was it launched by, uh, you know, a behind the, uh, you know, the borders team, right there. Remember there's 5 million Ukrainians living in Russia, right? Some 3 million of them refugees just from the last year, and then refugees from previously, and lots of Ukrainians who have always lived and work here, right? It's real easy. It's almost, Russia, the FSB is working really overtime, and the amount of stuff they catch that you don't hear about, unless you're, you know, paying very close attention to the Russian news, they're stopping a lot, but they can never stop anything. The same thing with these small drone attacks, just like the Kiev regime. When you're launching drones with small drones, right, these small, uh, you know, commercial pro or, you know, um, uh, kamikaze drones, they got really small radar signatures. They're really hard to stop, you know, no matter what yes. you're using. Uh, particularly over widespread areas, right? Yeah, they'll always be able to hit an oil depot here and an oil depot there because you can't protect everything in a country, either Russia or Ukraine side. That's just a facet of modern warfare, and you have to start allocating for a certain amount of write-off. You defend what is most important, how you can, but, you know, they're going to get stuff through. They're going to get sabotage teams through. You're going to see more of it. Right. The big thing I'm looking for in this offensive, you know, other than, again, I I fear an amphibious crossing towards Energodar in the south, but is these these pinpricks, these sabotage attacks, these dirty tricks, assassinations, uh, you know, things like that. Um, That's what I've been talking about for weeks now. And they generate headlines. They generate panic. They're meant to generate the perception that Russia is losing or, or you know, Ukraine is striking back. Kiev is striking back uh, and they will continue. Um, so, you know, this this incident, was it something long range launched by Harkov from Harkov, you know, which is the closest that they could possibly reach? We know that's the very limit of what they have demonstrated they're capable of doing uh, so far. Um, you know, we did see several mysterious drones run out of fuel and crash outside of Moscow uh, as obviously trial runs in the week beforehand. Or was this something launched by a sabotage team uh, locally uh, from within Russia? We, we don't know that yet. Right. We don't yeah. know. Uh, they know or the Russian government knows, but they haven't released that that information yet. But um, there was an incident just last night at the time of, of taping where a Bayraktar uh, TB2 combat drone, Turkish provided, was seen flying over um, Kiev. Um, and um, there, there was immediately a lot of talk about this. Um, there was a lot of attempts in the uh, Ukrainian media and, and telegram channels to present this as some type of, they, they tried to say it was a Russian Corsair Corsair, which is a um, a uh, reconnaissance uh, drone anyway, but similar in shape and profile. You'll remember there was a lot of talk about the TB2s, about the Bayraktars at the beginning of this conflict. Game oh, changer. They were the miracle weapon, the game changer and everything. 
And then Russia, once, once they, they got over this, uh, this initial thunder run mistakes and started sending into their, uh, uh BTG, uh, offensive defensive formations that are protected, they're, they're have heavily a lot of offensive firepower, the artillery, the rocket systems, right? The like, but what people don't mention is they also have huge defensive power. They have yes. mobile, a physical shield of air defense that goes with them, but they also all have a mobile uh, shield of electronic warfare that goes with them as well. Really effective units. So two layers of protection against precision strikes and aircraft and, and the like over them. And once they settled into that, once the, the electronic warfare units were able to catch up and they satisfied, you know, they formed normal BTG and offensive lines in East Ukraine, um, all the Bayraktars disappeared, right? Yeah. You never heard anything about them again. Um, and Forbes ran an article in December quoting actually a paper from the RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, that the, said that the, the Kiev regime started this conflict with thousands of Western-provided drones. And that by the end of the summer, by, by September, the, the Kiev regime had lost, not according to us, according to them, 90% of their drones, most of it due to Russian electronic warfare. 90%. They called it a drone massacre. Not me. They did. The Royal United Services Institute and Forbes. But, you know, they reported it, but they left it out of the narrative. It wasn't allowed the way the change they change about things. So that's why you never heard about the Bayraktars again. They've only got a couple of them left. Evidently, one of them was seen flying above Kiev. And there was talk that maybe, um, it, maybe it was a Kiev regime false flag to try and say, oh, Russia then a, a tried to assassinate Zelensky, even though everyone knows that Zelensky is afraid to return <laughs> to Ukraine at the moment. And he went yes. from Finland to an unscheduled trip to the Netherlands. And there's no word about when he'll, he'll need another reassert, re, um, reassurement from Naftali Bennett that, that Putin won't target him before he comes back to the country, uh, probably, or they'll smuggle him in by train through Poland or something like that. Um, but, um, so they, sh it, it, eventually they had to admit they shot down their own Bayraktar uh, flying above Kiev. And there's all kinds of hilarious videos out there of, uh, uh, people in Kiev, young men leaning out their windows with double barrel shotguns. And even I saw machine guns that they must have acquired somewhere off of vehicles that they had. Uh, in their, uh, not, not military, like civilian guys, uh, you know, leaning out their windows trying to shoot down the Russian drone. Well, eventually their own military shot it down and they had to admit that they're the ones who did it because there was too many videos of this thing out there for them to cover up. Um, and they say, this is what the Kiev regime, uh, Air Force put out officially that they lost control of. Now, that's very interesting. Now, 
Electron Russian electronic warfare can and regularly does hijack drones, right? You know, they can ground them, they can block GPS signals, they can also replace them and land them and take control of them. But that's way too far outside the range of anything that I know that Russia is capable of. But I have since heard suggestions there in, in, in the Russian telegram channels that someone in the DPR is claiming to have hacked it. And I, I can't at this moment confirm that. It's not what I would consider firm information, but I mention it because it does seem the most likely explanation of, of what occurred. Why the Kiev would lose control of one of their own combat drones and have to shoot it down over their own capital city. I, it's, it's the Very best odd. explanation yeah. that makes sense to me as well, but you know, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, an, air, an air defense missile that took it yes. down. So they, they lost one of their last remaining drones and they used uh, an air defense missile that is in very short supply to shoot it down. So, that it, we're, you know, we're talking about a war of attrition. And I, I mean, it, this, this, is, uh, this is Ukraine doing Russia's work for them. Yes, yeah. Mark. One, one thing we brought up, you know, we've been told, told again, that they have a shortage of air defense missiles. They don't have many left and they don't have the ability to replace them. And I, I believe that that's largely true. But one of the things that has started to occur to me as Prigozhin has done his theater and say, oh, I don't have any artillery shells. And, you know, uh, please don't attack Bakhmut, right? You know, right now when I'm, when I'm rotating out with no artillery shells is that the West very well could have not revealed the equipment or the level of equipment that they provided uh, to the Kiev and various things uh, as well. They could have said that they sent so much of something and sent far more of it. Uh, And they could have had hidden stockpiles or gotten them from third countries that we don't know about. Uh, So be prepared that whatever you do an excellent rundown all the time of uh, these um, uh, force, you know, these uh, packages that are sent. But I've, I've started to fear that what is said in those packages at this point could be a uh, also a vector for disinformation as well. So yes. be, be, be suspect, uh, be prepared for the unexpected in this offense. Yes. Uh, people should keep keep an open mind to that. There were weapon systems and munitions that they did send that they didn't announce. I think the anti-radiation missiles. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but one thing we do know for sure is that Russia is using its military aviation more more freely along the line of contact. I think that is a direct result of dwindling air defense, air defense systems, yeah. at least along the line of contact. Uh, so... I think uh, we're we're at the one and a half hour mark. I think um, I think we'll wrap things up. I see many people in the comment section asking about Gonzalo Lira. I've tried to contact him. I've not gotten an answer back from him. I have no idea what's going on with him. Uh, I, I feel move. really bad now. Yeah, well, well, people shouldn't speculate about what's going on. He has he has disappeared for a couple of days, like two or three days before, because he wasn't well. He wasn't feeling well, or uh, something like that. So uh, 
I'll, I'll continue trying to contact him. I'm sure others will, and we'll try to figure out what happened to him. Uh, you know, don't don't jump to conclusions and don't speculate because that that doesn't help at all. I did a roundtable with him a couple weeks ago. It was just me and him, not really round, I guess. And at the very end of it, when we were signing off, you know, off screen, I said, "Hey, you know, we're, I don't know, we're friends, I guess, online friends." I said, "You know." Between you and me, I, I hope you have a way of getting out of there really quick if you need to. And if you don't, you know, then get one. And then he's like, yep. I mean, he doesn't want to really answer because, of course, you know, if they care enough, the care regime people could always be, SBU could always be listening to him. Uh, but now I'm like, oh, boy, I hope I, <laughs> it's probably not. Well, but I, yeah. well, no, I mean, but the, the, the thing is that that's a very difficult position that he's in uh this is this is something that the western media was was when they when they thought something had happened to him initially you had people in the western media celebrating it uh some of these uh creatures uh celebrating it and this just goes to show you the true nature of this entire conflict and what is actually being fought for here and uh, i think people should keep that in mind so I, again, as soon as I have any information at all about Gonzalo Lira, I will let everybody know. I will continue trying to contact him out, talk with other people behind the scenes who. My, my own family got out of Harkov eight months ago. So. Yes. That, uh, very important to get out when you can, because when things start to go wrong, it's very unpredictable and things that you imagined would have been possible are actually extremely unrealistic when things start to actually unfold. So always err on the side of caution. Always be prudent, uh, even if uh, it didn't seem like a <laughs> necessary at the time. Who who thought that they would reach out and kill Daria Dugana or Vladen Tatarsky? And they yeah. did, and the Western media just excused and shrugged and, it off. Shrugged it off and said they probably deserved it. They were Russians or or pro Russians, and and so they deserved it. That was it. And they will do the same things to any one of us. Uh, I'm. Just relatively, well, I thought I was relatively, luckily I'm a lot lower profile than, than Vladen Tatarsky and you're relatively safe in Thailand. Although that could change in the near future. Very, very soon. Yeah. I'm going to be covering that. That's going to be a, a lot of extra work coming up. Um, just got to keep, keep on doing what, what we got to do. Uh, you know, there's a lot at stake, uh, even though Mark, you, you you said some pessimistic things, and but I agree, and I, I continuously warn people this is a long-term conflict. We have to continue, you know, the world's shifting to multipolarism. This is something we all have to try to contribute to and invest in, and we have to just keep on keeping on because uh, the, the West and their unipolar world order are going to try to reassert themselves at all costs, and it's going to be a combination. It was built by a combination of people over a long period of time. It's going to be dismantled the same way. So we just got to keep working toward it. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking an, an hour and a half out of your Friday to join us. I, I want to thank everyone in the comment section who joined us uh, this Friday. Um, please check the video description below for everywhere you can find and follow Mark's uh, work. And uh, Mark, is there any is there anything that you want to that you're particularly focused on Telegram or? Uh, yeah, I follow uh, you on Telegram primarily. Yeah, uh, I, I I'm doing uh, this week. I did like twelve or thirteen. I still got one more radio interviews on Sputnik. Uh, I, I can't possibly put them. I put several a week out on my Substack. 
Yeah, they're really good too. People should go and listen to them. And Brian's are, really are as well because uh, he's been picked up a lot more recently too. Uh, so, but uh, I put everything either on my Substack or Telegram. I do do a lot on Twitter or Facebook. I don't even bother anymore. They're so censored there. Yeah. Um, but uh, my YouTube channel, uh, The Real Politique with Mark Sloboda. I'm a little behind on the video editing there. It's very time consuming to do a lot yes. of uh, uh, visuals and, and, and so forth, but I'm I'm getting back up started with that, uh, hopefully as well. Uh, but yeah, Telegram and, and Substack, uh, besides that, are the best ways to follow me. Um, I have had people try to pledge me money on my Substack, uh, even though I don't have it opened for receiving money. You cannot send me money. I have a Russian bank and a Russian credit card. I don't have a Western credit card account. There's no way that you can send me money or that I can take it. I'm very appreciative of those people who have tried. But cryptocurrency, all right, no, no, none of that actually works. Uh, it uh, So um, you can't, so don't give it to me, give it to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> like Anyway, Putin pays you uh, quite yeah. a stipend. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah, worry about it. My, yeah, yeah, that's why I still have to teach for a living, right? Oh, yeah. If only. Uh, if yeah. only our information war was as well funded as, as their information yes. war. But yes. uh, please uh, support the new Atlas uh, and uh, other uh, similar channels uh, out there, but primarily uh, the new Atlas. Yes, then, and thank you for that, Mark. And we're going to try to get you back on a lot, a lot more often. I, I think I want to try to bring in guests uh, with, with Angela and myself every Friday if we can. And I, I'd like you to be one of those guests that come back very often. So uh, thank you again. Thank you, everyone, in the, the comment section. Uh, I will, you know, I'll look through all the comments and uh, maybe do a question and answer uh, next week or something. So thanks again. And until next time, bye for now.